1 Corinthians 8, starting verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that, quote, all of us possess knowledge. This, quote, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, quote, an idol has no real existence and that, quote, there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, quote, gods and many, quote, lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols. And so by your knowledge, this, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And you can be seated. <clears throat> All right, well, we come again to this uh, rather unusual section about eating meat and food offered to idols. Uh, remember, I mentioned uh, two weeks ago that this section actually spans from chapter 8 all the way through uh, into chapter 10. Um, he, he takes three whole chapters to discuss this. If you, if you just read your Bible like one chapter at a time, you might miss the connection uh, that he makes, but he actually comes back to it. Um, and in fact, if you, if you go all the way to chapter 10, verse 31, we have what's, uh, what is a well-known verse in 1 Corinthians, <clears throat> where he says in verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I think most of us know that verse. We quote that verse occasionally. All of that is in the context of food being offered to idols and whether or not Christians should partake of that. Um, so, so one thing I just want to say up front here, and this is sort of a point of application, um, is, is that as blood-bought believers in Jesus, we need to be willing to spend the necessary time with people when they have questions um, and, and take the long road. We need to spend time with people actually explaining to them and dealing with all their objections that they might have to a particular issue. So, so here the issue is whether or not we can eat meat offered to idols, or can we buy meat in the, in the marketplace that may or may not have been offered to idols? Or more specifically here in this, this context that he'll, that he'll get to later, can we go to a, a temple to an idol, sit down and have dinner in the temple, and eat meat there in good conscience as Christians? What's interesting is Paul doesn't actually directly answer that question until chapter 10. Almost three full chapters later. I mean, think about that. He could have just said in chapter 8, verse 1, he could have just said, Now concerning food offered to idols, don't go to the temple and sit down and eat meat. He could have just said that. 
but he doesn't. He actually spends three chapters working through all of their objections and all of the difficulties that surround this. And I think that's um, a little bit helpful for us. He spends a lot of time in chapter 8 talking about how we are to love one another through what we do and the liberties we might have. He talks in chapter 9 about giving up our rights. We have rights as Christians. We have a lot of freedom as Christians to do a lot of different things. In chapter 9, he talks about how we can give up all of those rights so that our brothers in the Lord do not stumble. And then actually in chapter 10, he talks a fair amount about how people can look like the followers of God, just like they did in Israel, but they can actually be deceived. And then after all of that, he actually answers their question. So why so much runaround? Well, I don't think it's runaround. I think it's that Paul is a patient and a wise leader. He knows that many times just just simply answering somebody's direct question doesn't actually get to the real issue. That sometimes as Christians, we need to take the time and ask people even, why are you asking this question? Why is this on your mind? Why are you pondering this? And I think he knows here that the Corinthians have a tendency to claim that knowledge trumps love. And so he knows he needs to actually deal with their heart of loving one another before he even gets to the, to the real truth and the commands concerning going to the temple. And again, I think the, the thing that we should take away from this is that we need to spend that time answering people's questions, answering their objections when it's a hard and very difficult thing. I don't, I don't know about you guys, but as parents, it's easy just to tell our kids to do something because that's what I told you to do or do something because that's what God says. But actually, we would do well to stop and spend the time and tell them why or even ask them why they're struggling with what's going on. Proverbs 20 verse 5 says the purpose in a man's heart is like deep water. It's like well water way, way down there. And the man of wisdom draws it out. It takes time. It takes effort to draw out what's going on in somebody's heart. And so sometimes it's more important to know why someone is asking a question rather than what the question really is. And I think that's what he's getting to here. We, we don't often understand why the meat offered to idols is a big deal. We don't deal with that in our context, in our culture. Paul dealt with it, but he really dealt with a lot of the surrounding issues before dealing with that. So with that, we'll get into our passage. I want to do a little bit of a small review. We went through verses 1 through 6 last time. Um, I want to cover that uh, a little bit of ground that we covered again, in case you weren't here. And then I want to dig into the rest of the passage. Remember that this is the, the issue here is, is it okay for Christians in good conscience to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols or potentially been sacrificed to idols? We don't deal with this a lot, but they did in the ancient Roman world, and they actually do deal with this a lot in other places in the world where there are other shrines and idols. Uh, pagan idolatry was literally on every corner in Corinth. There were at least 26 different religious places in Corinth where there were um, temples or places where you could go to worship. And a lot of times those temples doubled as marketplaces. You could go there and you could buy your food. You could go there and you could buy meat or, or, or different kinds of goods. So they acted as kind of like storefronts. It was it, Pagan idolatry was intertwined into everyday life. And the example I gave last time is, you know, what if you wanted to go to Ace Hardware? Well, they also had a temple to Zeus there. Or what if you wanted to go to Yokes and they had a, uh, a temple to Artemis there? It was just so intertwined with everything there in Corinth that, that it was hard to, to buy and sell without it somehow being intertwined with a pagan god somewhere. 
And the rub for Christians was, well, wait a minute. If I go down to the local market and buy something, am I supporting the pagan idolatry that's going on there? Can I buy that in good conscience? If this, if this meat that I'm going to take home and eat has been sacrificed to, to a god, can I eat that? Do I ask the question if it's just some, some vendor out there? Is that okay or worse? Is it, is it, is it me participating in idolatry? Am I, am I actually worshiping this god? And so you had many of the Christians in Corinth. They had been saved out of pagan idolatry. They had been saved out of this, this stuff. And so now they're like, well, wait a minute. Uh, we can't go back there. And brother, what are you doing going there? You can't do this. That's, that's participating in idolatry. And it seems like specifically what was happening here was, was more than just, just going down to the meat market and grabbing a slab of steak or something and coming home and cooking it. The temples often had little dining areas where you could sit down and eat in the temple. And these Christians in their freedom, quote unquote, they'd say, well, we're going to go there. And we're going to sit down and we're going to have a, a meal at the, the temple of Aphrodite here. And, you know, it's buy one, get one free. This is great. Like, and, and the other Christians are like, you are literally participating in idolatry. How is this possible? And they're like, no, we have knowledge. There's only one God. So we're not actually participating in idolatry because there is no idol. There's no real idol there. Don't you know this? We all agree that there's only one God. And so you had this, this rift going on in the church. And so watch how he addresses this initially in verses 1 through 4. This is this knowledge that they bring up. That's why it's in quotes in some of your versions. So he says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that, quote unquote, all of us possess knowledge. That's what those who would go to the, the, idol, the idol temple would say. They'd say, we all possess knowledge, guys. And our knowledge is there's no real idol. So that's what they would say. That would be their little slogan. So we know that all of us, quote-unquote, possess knowledge. This, quote, knowledge puffs up. It creates pride as opposed to love that builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, quote, an idol has no real existence and that, quote, there is no God but one. So these were quotes, these were little slogans that the, that the Corinthian believers would, would quote at their, their friends to justify going and eating at the pagan temple. That's why you have those little quotes. They would say, we all possess knowledge, there's only one God, there's no real existence with these, these pagan gods, so we can go do whatever we want. Since they don't exist, we, can, we don't have to worry about committing idolatry. Ta-da! We solved it all. Well, that sounds clever, but it's really just that. It's just clever. I mean, what about all those verses in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, that warn us against idolatry? Seems like maybe God didn't realize, oh, well, there's no other gods? No, they were just trying to be clever to go do what they wanted to do. Paul actually gets to the heart of this cleverness, and the heart of the cleverness is that the Corinthians wanted to sound smart, and they wanted to avoid actually doing the hard work of loving each other. That was the real issue. That was the primary issue going on. The Corinthians are saying, we all have this knowledge. Every Christian has a certain amount of knowledge, right? In order to even be saved, faith comes by hearing. There has to be a certain amount of doctrine that we know and comprehend and understand and believe in order to be saved. Romans 6.17 says that you were once slaves of sin and you have become obedient to that standard of teaching. 
to the basic premise of the gospel message into which you were delivered. You have to have a standard of teaching in order to even be saved. You have to believe that standard of teaching. Someone has to have that in order to be saved. There is that body of truth. Paul touches on a little bit of what that body is, that body of truth is in verses 5 through 6. He says, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, quote, gods and many, quote, lords, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. A lot of similarities between that and and our Lord's Supper homily, actually. This is basic to the Christian understanding. And so what was happening is people were saying, oh, well, we know there's only one God, so we can go down to this idol temple, no big deal, because there's no idol. Because no... That's not how it works. If that was the case, why didn't God just say that in the first place? I guess all those warnings he gave are just useless. That'd be like us saying, well, we know there's only one God, so it's okay for us to go down to the Buddhist temple in Spokane, and it's okay for us to offer a little bit of a sacrifice so that we can get the buy one, get one free meal afterwards. And we'd be looking at each other like, no, that's called worship, actually. That's called idolatry. We can't do that. Or it'd be like going down to like the Mormon temple or something um, and going in and offering a little something so that we can get in on their, their free potluck. Like, no, that doesn't work. That's what was going on in Corinth. They were going down to the local pagan temple and they were sitting in the temple eating the meat saying, well, it's not a big deal because this idol doesn't really exist. No, that's actually the definition of idolatry sitting down in their temple, offering the sacrifice and eating alongside. Their argument doesn't work. Idolatry is spiritual suicide, even if there's no real God behind the idolatry, because it is worship of something other than is really God. Paul goes on to say, if there's really something behind there, it's a demon, actually, that's behind there. You're actually offering worship to demons when you do this sort of thing. So just because we all know that there's only one God doesn't give us a green light to go to pagan temples. And so in verses 7 through 9, this is where he kind of gets to the crux of the matter. This is where he kind of gets to the heart of it. Take a look there. He says, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And what he's getting at here is that a lot of times when somebody comes out of a false religion, there's usually a fair amount of baggage that comes with them that they have to work through and they have to deal with. They've seen the lies, they've seen the darkness, they've seen the corruption all in the name of this false idol, this false god, that sort of thing. And they want nothing more to do with it because they've actually experienced all of that evil. But a lot of times those who haven't experienced all of that, they they simply know that these false religions exist, but they haven't experienced the the backlash of it all. They they really have pride and like, what's your problem? that idol doesn't even really exist. There's, there's nothing even really there. Especially when someone comes out of a false religion, their conscience can be weak. And they want to cut off every possible association with a former life, and rightly so. I've known people who come out of Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnessism, and, and they just they want to cut off every contact 
They want nothing to do with any of it because it's all wrong, it's all bad, it's everything is suspect, and, and I get that. Their conscience is weak because they've been lied to for so long. They've heard lies, they've seen abuse, they've seen all kinds of stuff. And imagine in this time where there were cult prostitutes. Imagine, imagine you've got a cult prostitute that had been saved out of the temple of Aphrodite. She was used and abused for years. She comes out. She wants nothing to do with that temple at all. They've used her for gain. And now you're sitting in a church, and here's a dude who invites her. Hey, you want to go get a meal with me and my family down at the temple of Aphrodite? She's like, are you crazy? Why would you do that? Oh, are you kidding me? There's no real God. Well, there's something wicked going on over there. And I'm not partaking of any of it. Yeah, there is no real God. But there's demonic stuff happening over there. There's satanic stuff happening over there. And the Corinthians weren't concerned about their, their, the, the weaker brothers in their congregation or what they thought. They just wanted to express their liberty. Well, we're going to find out in chapter 10 that there was no liberty for them to go to the pagan temple in the first place. There might be some liberty for them to go buy a steak and bring it home and eat it, but not actually go sit down and eat at the pagan temple. One person in their church couldn't believe someone would do that, support a cult. The other person says this is basic knowledge that every Christian knows. But that knowledge is, is kind of missing the point, isn't it? It's missing the point of, of loving the brother sitting next to us. And he kind of gets to that in verse 8. It's not really about the food. He says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat. We are no better off if we do. The issue is not really food. Food doesn't bring us any closer to God. It doesn't take us away from God because in the covenant, we're free to eat whatever. We have freedom with that. There, there are people who often say, well, you know, you need to try this Christian diet. Can I tell you something? There's no Christian diet. There's none. We're free to eat whatever. We're free in the new covenant. There's nothing that is unclean. The issue here is the context around eating that food. And eating that food in a pagan temple would be wrong because it would be idolatry. There's no amount of theological knowledge that can solve that problem. If you're in the pagan temple, if you're, if you're eating in the pagan temple food that has been offered, you are committing idolatry. That is the line in the sand. And more than that, Paul is saying, forget the technical knowledge for a minute. Don't you understand what this is doing to your brother in Christ? Don't you understand how this is causing your brother to stumble and to fall? You're going to the temple and you're eating, and what you're actually doing is you're actually encouraging this brother or sister who has come out of that pagan idolatry to actually go back into it and go, ah, it's not that big a deal. That thing that you were saved out of, that Christ radically saved you out of, not that big a deal. We can go, we can go down there. We can eat in there. We can take part in that. See, for Paul, the primary issue here was not about rules or freedom. The primary issue here was, are you loving your brother in the Lord? Are you causing them to stumble? Are you, are you leading them back? Are you tempting them back into idolatry? And this is no small matter here. Notice the words that he says. Verse 10, for if anyone sees you, who have, quote, knowledge, eating at an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? Right? So, so you have this, quote, knowledge, and you're eating over there, and they pass by, and they're like, oh, hey, uh, Jim is eating in the idol's temple. Well, I guess it's not that bad. Maybe I'll go do it. And then they're dragged back into idolatry. 
Verse 11, this is where he uses some big, harsh words. And he says, and by your, and I would put quotes around this, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. This is a really important argument here. Our first instinct as Christians should not be, how far can I go with my liberty? How much can I do in my liberty? Our first instinct as Christians should be, how do I love my brother in the Lord? And can I give up my liberty in order to love my brother in the Lord? Are my actions tripping up my brother? Are my actions potentially causing them to sin? And it seems that the Corinthians were so concerned about their rights, they didn't really care about their brother who was sitting right next to them and what they had come out of in their spiritual health. In verse 9, he calls this a stumbling block. A stumbling block is, is just that. It's like, it's like if you're walking down a trail and you set up a bear trap in the middle of the trail and you cover it over with some leaves and you're like, hey, brother, come on. Let's go take a walk. Slam. That's what, that's what they're doing. They're putting a stumbling block in the way of their brother. Their foot gets trapped and they drop to the ground bleeding to death. This is what going to the temple for dinner is doing. Verse 11, he says, Paul says, this person is destroyed. Interestingly, this word is occasionally used for someone who is utterly cast into hell. I don't think that's the case here because he says specifically that this is the brother for whom Christ died. So I, I don't think that this person will go to hell. I think, though, that there is some real spiritual damage or spiritual trauma that goes on as this brother, this weak brother, sees another brother committing idolatry by eating at the pagan temple. Jesus laid down his life to save people from destruction, and here these brothers in the Lord are actually dragging them back into idolatry. And verse 12 makes it clear that this is sin. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Not only are we causing them to sin, but we're sinning. When we do something that is intrinsically, inherently sinful, whatever that might be, enjoying some sort of uh, movie that is far out of bounds for Christians or some other, whatever you want to call it, some other sinful thing, and other Christians see us, we're not only sinning against them because it's enticing them into sin, we ourselves are sinning, and we're sinning against Jesus specifically. In fact, look back at Matthew 18 for a minute. We see very similar language here in Matthew 18. And I, and I just, it, it, the, the bigger issue here is our attitude toward other believers. And as Christians, we often just kind of go, you know what? I have the right to do this. And we don't concern ourselves with other believers and what it might be doing to them. But for Christians, how we conduct ourselves around other believers is a very important issue. Not only do we not want to sin, but we don't ever want to cause one of our brothers to sin or sisters to sin. We never want to do that. If you remember here in Matthew 18, this is one of the several times that the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom. Right? They're jockeying for position and, and who gets to sit at the right hand. And Jesus says that's, that's not actually how his kingdom works. Notice verses 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
and calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them, and he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So the issue is humility. The issue is counting absolutely everyone else greater than yourself. You want to be great in the kingdom? You take the lowliest spot, the children's table. And not only do you take the children's table, but you honor other children. Not, not just literal children, but those who are humble and lowly in a state. And one of the ways you do that is you make sure you never, ever cause them to sin. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones to be, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. This is the kind of sensitivity we are to have to other people in the faith. This is a this is a grave warning. I mean, here's the Lord Jesus who is literally saying it would be better for you to go commit suicide by drowning yourself than to cause another believer to sin. A millstone was a, was a big rock that was flat on the bottom and, and they would turn it to grind up grain into flour. It was a huge rock. And he says a great millstone. The issue is not, what can I get away with in the kingdom? That's what the Corinthians were trying to do. They were trying to push their so-called liberty to the limit. The issue is, are my actions causing my brother to sin? If they are, it would be better for us to drown ourselves. That's what Jesus says. We do not cause one another to sin. This is the kind of sensitive conscience we should have when we're considering an action that we know might be a little controversial. If we know that it's a little edgy, we should really stop and consider. Is this something that I'm going to hear from Jesus later? You know that time that you were going to do this? Yeah. You should have grabbed a boat anchor and wrapped that around your neck. That's how sensitive we need to be to other brothers and sisters in Christ. That we would never cause them to sin. Why? Because Jesus laid down his life for them. Just like he laid down his life for us. Look back at 1 Corinthians 8. This Take a look at that last verse. Notice again the extent to which Paul says he would go to ensure that someone would not sin. Verse 13. He says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. You mean to tell me that there's a situation with Christians where we might give up meat entirely? Yeah. Yeah, there is, actually. That sounds really radical. That sounds really amazing. But as Christians, we are willing to give up our rights for the good of our brothers and sisters. Even giving up meat. I love meat. I love the New Covenant. I love pork a lot. I like ribs a lot. Whenever I go out to dinner, it's like ribs or fish or something. I want the meat. Paul says, would that meat, where you're eating it, how it's prepared, that's what, would that cause a brother to stumble? If so, then you should be willing to give it up 
And we have that example in the gospel, don't we? Jesus, glorious son of God, every right, everything, gives up everything, taking on human flesh, suffering, dying on a cross for us. The Christian ethic does not start with how much can I do in my Christian freedom. The Christian ethic begins with am I making my brother stumble and fall? Am I sinning against Christ? Paul will tell them later on in chapter 10, hey, look, this is just a command. You don't go to the idol temple and eat there because that's idolatry. But their biggest issue was lack of love for one another. And when it comes to rights and when it comes to liberties, that's usually our biggest issue too, is lack of love for other people. We want that right. We want to do whatever we want to do. No, our example is Jesus, who gave up everything so that we could have eternal life. And he calls us to do the same thing. Be willing to give up everything in love to serve our brothers and sisters in the same way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this section, this truth, which does, in one sense, not seem to really apply to us in the, the food and idol temples and that sort of thing. Lord, but it really does get to our heart of, of often just wanting what we want and claiming our own rights and liberties. Lord, forgive us for our selfishness. Forgive us for when we use our liberties and our brothers stumble and sin and we sin against them and we sin against you and we cause them to sin. Lord, there's just a lot of sin. So we pray for your forgiveness. We pray for your mercy. Help us to always place our brothers in front of ourselves. And Lord, as we come to eat together, uh, may you give us a blessed fellowship, blessed friendship over this meal. We ask in Jesus' name.